Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again and welcome to Radiotherapy live online and on podcast. Uh, And I look forward to having your company for the next hour here on 3RRR 102.7. Well, we're we're lean and mean here in the studio with myself, panel beater, gazing fondly, me and him gazing fondly at each other uh, through the glass walls of the studios. Um, Hi, panel beater, give me a wave. He's waving. Yeah, you can see me. That's fantastic. So how are you this morning? I'm really good, uh, Dr. Nick. Fabulous to see you. And I'm just um, wondering at the amazing uh, uh, application of technology that we're looking forward to this morning. We're going to get uh, Rainbow on Zoom any second now, I think. Fantastic. Sound and vision. Extraordinary. And what a fantastic morning this morning. I'm cycling in and the sun was shining. Melbourne at its finest in this early winter time. But just... Mm. Gorgeous. We had a bit of everything during the week, though, didn't we? <laughs> we certainly did. Those reservoirs filling up nicely. <laughs> um, so we will, hopefully, we will have our resident psychologist and commentator on matters of the mind, Rainbow Doc, joining us soon. Um, and she'll be talking about complex tra- trauma and the, the very complex and often misunderstood concept of dissociation. Uh, particularly in the light of some new guidelines that have been recently released to help people in this situation. And Panel Beater, he'll be having a look at our mental health system and helping us unpack the recently announced mental health policy package. (laughs) And if if after all that and some excellent music by local talent, there's any time left over, I'll be looking at the experience of telehealth, what works and what doesn't. But first, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, I get very excited about smoking because, um, as anyone be aware, smoking is such a massive health risk and um, anything that we can do to help is a good thing. Now, Rainbow touched on this uh, when we were talking a few weeks back when we were talking about vaping. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, there was a new study released, and I love this study because it wasn't industry-sponsored, uh, where they took people who were in hospital, and these were high-risk people who were smoking, and they gave some people counselling and other people counselling plus some medication to help them quit smoking. And their figures showed that at two years, the uh, counselling and medication group had reduced this uh, 30% of them, nearly a third of them, had stopped smoking, which compared to only 19% of them who had the counselling alone. Now, people might think, well, it's not great figures, but with smoking, any benefit is a good benefit. Um, And what this showed is that it can work if you combine your counselling and some uh, sensible medication assistance. So we should be looking at this much more as something which we do uh, for our patients who smoke. Um, And one of the things I want to do is promote our local resorts the quit line. Yeah. You know about the quit line, don't you, Panel Beater? I do know about the quit line, and, and, and go ahead with that, but I'm really keen to know um, where smoking fits in with your consultations at the moment. You know, what are you noticing, trends and things like that, just at a, at a community level? So it's a really important point, particularly in this time of COVID, because there's a, a, a theory which makes absolute sense that because COVID attacks us through lung receptors and smoking, 
makes our lungs uh, more vulnerable to disease that uh, we should be really focusing on smoking at the moment. What we know is that um, any advice from a doctor saying to people, you really ought to quit smoking, uh, does make a difference that something like 1% to 2% of people will quit every year just because their doctor tells them to, uh, which is probably the cheapest, most efficient way of, of, of getting people to <laughs> stop smoking is just doctors telling them. But we, we sorry, yes, go. And, and what's the most common approach people are taking at the moment? Is, uh, is there one that's dominating, patches, therapy, um, et cetera, et cetera? So we have uh, um, three really effective um, medication ways of helping. One is to use uh, just nicotine replacement through patches, gum, that sort of thing. Uh, we also have a medication which is uh, similar in format to one of the SSRIs, the antidepressant medications, a thing called bupropion, um, known as Zyban. Um, and then we also have a thing called Varenicline, which is an anti-craving drug trade named Champix. And all three of these can be effective, but all of them work much better in com combination with counselling. And this is the bit I want to talk about, is we in Australia were so lucky to have the thing called the Quit Line. I'll give the number straight away because it's 137848. I rang them up just to check what was happening with Quitline, and um, what a great service. You leave your number, they rang me back within a minute or so. I had a long chat with them, uh, and they will uh, do up to eight counselling sessions with people who want to quit smoking. They'll give them any amount of time. It can be five minutes, it can be, it can be an hour. Um, they'll give them whatever those people need. Um, so a great service to have the Quitline, and anything that combines... Uh, the counselling uh, with one of these medications is going to be more effective. So if you're a smoker out there and you want to give it a go getting off the things, uh, now is the time. 137848 is the number for the quit line. So, uh, and if you're, if you're not sure about what to do, go and talk to your doctor because the, the, you can go and buy the patches, you can get the gum at the pharmacy, um, but the prescription medications will help as well. They're, they're not straightforward. They can have side effects, but worth, well worth asking about. Back to your consultations, uh, do, you, do you profile your uh, clients in any particular way when you're making that recommendation? Is there something you've, you, you've talked us through a, a range of options is there something that's better suited to somebody uh, than others? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, as I mentioned, there are the three ways. And nicotine replacement is in some ways the most available because people can just go and buy it. Um, it's really safe and effective for almost anyone. So that's our kind of starting point, I suppose. We do have, as I say, we have this one called bupropion, which is an SSRI. People might know that because it's um, similar to drugs, some of the antidepressant drugs, things that people might know like Zoloft and Lexapro and so on. Um, so that may not be suitable for some people because similar to those drugs, it can have significant side effects. Uh, funny enough, the one statistically most effective is this one called Varenicline, trade name Champix. Um, which is quite a complicated drug to use because lots of people get some nausea, but uh, it is statistically one of the most effective assistants that we have when people want to stop smoking. Um, but again, um, it's horses for courses, different drugs suit different patients, so it's really important that that conversation is had with your doctor. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Uh, and now, hopefully on the phone, we have our resident psychologist, commentator on all matters, matters of the mind, Rainbow Doc. Rainbow, can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me okay, Dr. Nick? I can hear you loud and clear and your dulcet tones coming through. It's so nice to have you. <laughs> now, you, um, you've, you've been thinking about complex trauma and this 
condition called dissociation. Just tell me first up, why are we talking about that this morning? What's triggered this? We're, we're talking about it because the Blue Knot Foundation has released two sets of guidelines um, for working with uh, dissociation. One set is for practitioners and the other is to help people in, in supervision, to support practitioners. And I say one's for practitioners, practitioners to use with clients and the other or clients or patients and the other is um, to, to help support those practitioners. So can you, you tell me straight away who are the Blue Knot Foundation? Can you explain for us? Um, Blue Knot Foundation, I'll say I have... I have no interest to declare here. I did actually do some training with the Blue Knot Foundation years ago. Um, they started off in 1995 of ASCA, the acronym, uh, which was to, you know, an organisation to represent um, people who'd experienced uh, sexual assault as children. Um, I'm not quite sure when they became the Blue Knot Foundation, but they ran a campaign um, some years ago um, with Blue Ribbons, and I think that was the start of them um, moving to be, to be the Blue Knot Foundation. And they um, describe themselves as a centre for excellence for complex trauma, and I have to say they are an amazing uh, organisation, certainly centre for excellence and um, source of an awful lot of information around complex trauma, childhood sexual abuse, and have been... Um, uh, very much involved in royal commissions um, um, for childhood sexual abuse, um, as well as the royal commission, um, uh, the current royal commission for people with disabilities. We've used two phrases here. We used complex trauma and dissociation. Now, I think we need to unpack both of those a little bit um, because there was a in the press release about this, they said there are 5 million Australians living with complex trauma, which seemed an, an extraordinary figure to me. So can you tell me what we're talking about with, what is complex trauma first up? Um, complex trauma is not the same as PTSD. So, so post-traumatic stress disorder is a response to a particular one event experienced generally as an adult. Um, complex trauma is a response to multiple childhood events, um, interpersonal in nature, so um, uh, involving the, the caregiver or a caregiver and kind of con the interactions constitute kind of a betrayal of the, um, a betrayal of attachment, a betrayal of, um, of, of caregiving. Um, and the result of this is you know, a reduced capacity to be able to integrate what's happening in our bodies, what's happening in our minds, to integrate bodily states and to integrate emotions, um, to uh, regulate our level of arousal. And often um, people with complex trauma also have a lot of somatic complaints. So the inability to, if you want, integrate what's happening in the body can lead to all sorts of usually um, uh, pain-related complaints that, that you would see, Dr Nick, in your practice, I'm sure. So what you're saying is that complex trauma causes not just psychological disruption but also physical somatic disruption and um, 
problems with physical health. And, and you mentioned that uh, attachment early in life. Um, so, as I would understand, one of the crucial things that we need to be more healthily integrated and not experience trauma is to have healthy, safe attachments to adults when we're babies and toddlers and so on. Uh, and it's that disruption, disruption from attachment figure. Is that one of the prime drivers of complex trauma? Yeah, um, people get, you know, children get caught between the need for that attachment, the need for that care, and the need to survive and managing experiences that are overwhelming and, and unbearable. So the mind, um, the mind, if you want, divides, um, creates parts in order to manage experiences that are unbearable and dissociates. So that brings us to that question of dissociation which you've mentioned, which I think some people sort of align that with this idea of multiple personality disorders and bizarre movies and books that they've read and a bit sceptical about it. So can you explain what we're talking about as a psychologist? What do we actually mean by dissociation? Well, dissociation, as you you mentioned, um, uh, you know, how, how people think of dissociation dissociation occurs on a continuum from something that is very normal part of our our development of self um, to to something which is a a, a debilitating condition um, dissociative identity disorder Um, you know if, if we look at a very simple definition it's it's dissociation is an altered state of consciousness of not being present, of not being aware, and not being mindful. So we, we're not actually there, if you if you want. We're not present. And it occurs as because of a lack of integration of the mind with other mental states. And it's but it, it, it develops as a defense against overwhelm. So this brings us to this question of. Um, you know, what actually happened here to create this dissociation? And dissociation on the normal end of, um, of the continuum is, is, is adaptive. You know, we need to be able to dissociate from states that are not useful. So and can you give us an example we... of adaptive dissociation then? How would it look when it's, a, if you like, a healthy response? Um, so something happens, um, something that happens that may be seen as traumatic, an event where someone, let's put it like this, someone else loses their shit, right? It's <laughs> yes. not helpful Technical for term. us to engage in that. So we kind of, dis- we have a way, we have developed a way of being able to manage our response to things in our environment that works for us. And we do this as children with the support, with the emotional support of a caregiver. We, we do this in order to be, to be able to create a healthy and adaptive, if you want, sense of self, a self that is integrated. Okay. If, you, if you are dissociating, if you are creating another part of yourself in order to cope with something that is completely unbearable, that becomes separate from other parts of self. You know, we all have different parts. We all have different parts, and it's not how many parts we have. It's actually how those parts kind of work together or, if you want, how they hang together. And if they hang together well, 
we we function with these various parts that we use at different times dependent on what's happening around us in order to keep ourselves safe and in order to feel healthy and functional. If a part is developed in response to something that is completely unbearable, it can become very separated and very rigid and that's when it becomes problematic. Okay, so, so we're not. Yeah, so that explains what we're talking about with complex trauma dissociation. But then my question is, as psychologists, you've known about this ever since Freud started talking about these kind of things. Uh, why do we suddenly need new guidelines? What are they saying? Well, what's happened, um, you know, in recent years is we've become much better or much more able to see what's happening in the brain. So now we know that something does actually happen in the brain when dissociation occurs, which means that, right, we need to pay more attention to this. What, the, the what does happen died, What happens in the brain when dissociation occurs? What do we know about that? Oh, Dr Nick, I'm not a neuropsychologist. I can't answer that question. But, you, but you're talking um, about some sort of a, a structural or chemical change that, uh, that there are. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so we can see it happening, which means it's real, if you want, rather than it's not just a concept, it's not just a theory, it, it actually happens. And um, the reason these guidelines have been brought out is because it's often missed, it's not looked, it's, it's not seen. So it's not questions aren't asked to identify whether there is dissociation there. Um, hey, Rainbow, the panel beta here. Hello, <laughs> you can hear me loud and clear. Hey, I just um, went as soon as you went uh, onto the neuroscience there, um, my brain went in a couple of di- different directions. And so I gather, like a lot of uh, therapy, this will be a therapy, and the guidelines will be pointing to how it has to work in combination with medication. Is that always the case, sometimes the case, or am I completely off the mark there? Uh, not necessarily, because as I said, you know, there's a continuum. We all dissociate all the time. In a, you know, if we paid attention to everything, yeah. we'd be in trouble. Yeah. So we find ways to, to work out what we need to pay attention to and what we don't need to pay attention to. So in that case, what's the um, aspiration of the therapy? Is the aspiration to live with it and work out techniques and strategies for um, the person uh, involved to live with this or is it to eradicate it from their lived experience altogether? The purpose of the ther- the purpose of working with dissociation is to be able to identify, to recognise these different parts, and to help the individual to link them together, so they are no longer out of awareness, and that they can work together. So there's an integration to create the self. So people that dissociate often find it difficult to use I statements, to talk about themselves as an integrated whole. Right. Sometimes people talk about we or, or they, they will just struggle to use that sense of, of themselves. It's kind of like um, it's, it's kind of like there isn't an ability to self-actualize, there is an ability to see yourself as an agent, as a person that has capacity to make things happen, stop things happening, and to regulate your emotional experience. It, it, that, 
so much makes sense to me when you say that, Rainbow, because I've been fascinated over a long period of time when I'm talking with patients and they're using I and I did this and I did that. And then we get onto something complicated psychologically about how they're feeling. And all of a sudden they start saying, well, you know, when you feel like that, you. And they start talking in the second person. And so I now hear what you're saying. I'm saying, so that's an example perhaps of dissociation in a not completely unhealthy way, but to talk about this very personal, traumatic or difficult psychological stuff, they have to use a different way of talking. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, and what we hear, what we hear people say when we're working with them, you know, I mean, you know, that's our main source of information is the nonverbals. There are all sorts of sources of information, but yet language gives us a, a, a clue to this and, and how this works. And what we need to do is to um, to recognise that when that happens, oh, this is kind of another part of that person yeah. talking, yeah. right? So, so, what did, so what do these guidelines tell us that's new? So presumably there's something revolutionary, groundbreaking, going to completely alter your practice in there? Um, a little bit in the sense that, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with parts for some time, but... What, when someone presents to us, they generally present with, if you want, their most functional part. When they make an appointment to get support, whether it's physical or mental health, um, they present with their most functional part. And we can just work with that functional part. Okay, but, but, we but tell me what. But tell me what we're going to do. But tell me what we're going to do differently because of these guidelines. What are they saying that changes anything? Well, if someone's dissociating, we need to be able to uh, to ground them, to bring them back to now, to help them to um, to get the parts talking to each other, to link them up, right, rather than just be working with one part and ignoring the other one because the other part is probably the vulnerable part, may, um, may experience a lot of shame, and as, as clinicians, we tend ourselves, I mean, this is why there are guidelines for um, supervision, we tend to have a way of not wanting to go towards shame because shame is a, a really hard emotion to go to and, you know, all individuals have it and as, as practitioners, you know, if we're not prepared to acknowledge our own shame or the activation of our shame as we are with clients... We're, we're going to be missing a whole part of them. So is there, yeah, any, is there any evidence them. that they're talking about in these guidelines about particular treatments that we now know are more or less appropriate when managing complex trauma and dissociation? Yeah, obviously every case is going to be different. But, for instance, mindfulness that is being used by... <laughs> I was going to say everybody, not everybody, but (laughs) mindfulness is kind of the thing at the moment. Um, You know, for a a part of a person who has had experiences of being unbearable, the idea of being present to be brought into the present is terrifying. And that part is likely to dissociate. It's going to be terrifying. Um, If we talk about exposure therapy you know it gradually exposing people to the thing of that scares them the most what we're doing is bringing them towards an an experience which is unbearable and it's understandable why a person would dissociate from that experience panel beta um 
Um, Rainbow, I'm really keen, when you're talking like that, I, I'm wondering if you could paint a picture for us of what that first conversation with a, uh, a new client might be. Is, is step one to do something that you might, you know, my language, you, you choose better language, um, that might be kind of educational, like you, you're, you're talking to the patient the way that you're talking to us now. You're saying, this is what's going on. This is what we understand about it. This is um, what's uh, ahead of us agenda-wise. Is that is that step one, or do you need to find a different um, front door for this? It depends how you work. I mean, my front door is, is is kind of trying to get a picture of what's going on in a person's life. And in that process, as Dr Nick has just said, you hear the language that is used that give you clues about what might be happening, and you would, you know, you watch for... Um, the way someone presents themselves and talks about themselves for clues that there is some dissociation going on here, that there are parts and that these parts are not linked. So, and then, you know, psychoeducation is always useful because if you want a collaborative relationship with someone you're working with, they need to know what's going on, you know, to a certain degree. So psychoeducation, talking to them about about those parts and about this, the concept of dissociation, the, the client, the patient is likely to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's, yeah? a, that, that's fascinating stuff, Rainbow, and thank you so much for drawing our attention to that. So the, it's the Blue Knot Foundation, is that the right, the right phrase? Yeah, bluenot.org.au. I would really encourage people to go onto that website and have a look at these guidelines. I think they're extremely useful. Yeah. And there's... There's also a helpline for people with complex trauma, um, people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse that may be listening to this. It's 9 to 5 one 657 380 one three hundred six five seven three eight zero. That's the, the the line for people who may need to ring someone for about complex trauma. Thank you, Rainbow, and um, it's, it's lovely to hear that mindfulness, which has become one of those sort of buzzwords everyone talks about, um, has such a potent therapeutic benefit in in a, a really important area of psychology. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And panel beta, um, the new mental health package has been announced. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's been um, really occupying a lot of my time just out of general interest and uh, professionally uh, over the last little while. Um, I'm deep in the um, in public policy stuff at the moment at, at work, and uh, so this, obviously, given the the circumstances around COVID nineteen, has come to our attention. Forty eight million bucks worth of um, uh, hard uh, hard work for taxpayer money has been allocated to um, to a mental health package, um, yeah. which which sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? But they've just discovered they got sixty billion to spare. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I found a lazy sixty billion down by the you know the back of the couch or in the jeans pocket that hadn't been washed. Sixty billion dollars, Doctor Nick, did you, oh. just extraordinary, is it? But but let's talk about the forty eight million, which sounds like a lot of money, but. It, but where do you feel that that fits in this mental health system that we have? Yeah, okay. So it, um, 
For, it does sound like a lot, doesn't it? But um, it comes on the back of uh, the $1.1 billion thereabouts um, that was allocated um, back in March. And that was a combination of mental health and um, domestic violence funding for, for services in response to that as an issue. And obviously that was... Um, that that part of the budget was being formulated well in advance of understanding where we're going to end up with uh, with COVID. So now we've got this forty eight million loosely broken down into three parts: seven point three for research and data collection. Right, so we've got mm-hmm. to know what we're dealing with, trying to move the policy frame from one in which we're working in uncertainty into one that we're working with risk. Um, and that's where the data and research is going to come in. There's the the 11.3 million for communication and and outreach programs, um, otherwise AKA marketing, um, and 29.5 million for um, particularly targeted uh, targeted work with um, uh, clear, overtly identified groups. So older people, 19 million, cultural and linguistically diverse communities. 3.5 mil, Indigenous, 3.5, and we spoke about Indigenous um, mental health uh, on um, on the show uh, about six weeks ago, um, and carers uh, as well who are dealing with mental health. That's about 3.5 mil. So in total, 48 mil. So, or, so, so if we come back to one of the points you made um, earlier, you said, and I was very interested, you said about the research, so that we're moving from uh, uncertainty to risk. Just tell me a bit more what you mean by that. Yeah. So risk um, formulates itself out of a combination of uh, economics and um, and psych. So, so in economics, the distinction between uncertainty and risk is risk is really dealing with probability. So you've got your metrics, you've got your detail, you know the likelihood of something something happening and then you can formulate a policy or um, or a response based on probability on likelihood uncertainty and we I think the most common and most uh, favorited word uh, in our media of recent times and our politicians is unprecedented uh, I, that word is banned on this program <laughs> <laughs> unprecedented so when you're dealing with unprecedented um, you're dealing with um, you know as the word suggests, you've just never experienced before, you're lacking information and you don't know what to do about it. And that's in part where there's an interesting crossover between the economic idea of of risk management and the psych idea of uncertainty. So uncertainty, just to quickly link back into trauma that uh, Rainbow was talking to us about, um, often trauma is a result of an experience where uncertainty occurred. So childhood um, trauma comes from expecting the parent to arrive home from work one day, but the parent doesn't arrive home from work one day. And they've gone from um, an absolute certainty because dad or mum has been returning from work every day to an experience where they don't. So that's, an, that's the contrast with uncertainty and, and risk. And uh, um, but you mentioned that 48 million, which sounds a lot of money, but then earlier you mentioned that the previous package was 1.1 billion. So it's actually, yeah. it, it's what, it's less than a 1% addition to well, the overall yeah. funding. Two, uh, two bucks per Australian. Yeah. So, so just 
talk a little bit more about where this has been allocated and do you think that this is sensible? Are there winners and losers in all this? So the, 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 one of the analytical struggles when trying to assess whether this is a good thing or not, the, the first one is, yeah, where does 48 million fit within 1.1 billion? That's the first thing. Um, the other is that 48 million, well, yeah, but already we know the um, March budget from um, mental health services. And as a consequence of uh, telehealth, which, great, um, people are moving to telehealth uh, for support in these areas, um, about $9 million has already been saved on that budget. So you take $9 million off the 48, um, or put $9 million into that 48, and you're down to 39, and you start chipping away. Um, the uh, other aspect of this allocation, I think... Um, does need to be situated, you know, whether we talk about the $60 billion found a couple of days ago or not, um, it does need to be set against the job keeper response and the job seeker response. Um, and it's, it's marginal compared to that. And that's where um, we could maybe start talking about, you know, assessing whether this is an appropriate response in that, those terms. Yeah, so then it, let, let's talk really practically because uh, as a practitioner working a lot in mental health, I've, I struggle to see a little bit, well, okay, 48 million, but for my patients at, on the ground, that other awful phrase that ought to be tossed out along with unprecedented. Um, but what are the services that uh, this 48 million are going to increase? What are my patients going to see as benefits from this? Any idea? Yeah, this and there's the crux. And um, I was hoping you might have a little bit of insight. Maybe there's a, a professional memo going around on this. And that's one of the major criticisms at the moment is that uh, this $48 million um, is service provider focused, not um, community focused. So even though, as, as we broke it down, you've got the, this money going to older Australians, culturally linguistic diverse Australians, Indigenous um, and carers, um, when in reality it's going to the service providers for those groups, which um, no doubt has merit because obviously funding is required um, to deliver the services. But it does return our thinking to what's, what's sitting behind the need for the services in the first place. And, you know, broadly speaking, people tap into health services for, you know, and I am talking in the broadest terms, um, uh, you know, it might be for trauma, it might be for grief, it'll be something like the disassociation that um, um, Rainbow was talking about, uh, social disassociation even. Um, it might be related to illness, injury and uh, or end of life, which you know a great deal about, um, or relationship failure. So they're, they're big areas where people tap mental health. What's really interesting for us now with this situation is that all the claims for the increase in funding is related to job, lo job loss and financial insecurity, which is a very particular type of mental health issue. And if we say to ourselves, well, if, if job loss and financial insecurity is the motivator for people to need these services, isn't job security and financial security the more appropriate response? So, um, you know, if, if, if we want people to not need this in the first place, let's keep them in jobs somehow. And you raise an incredibly important point that we know that mental health is so intricately tied to people's um, personal and social and economic well-being. I'm, I'm looking here at, the, at some of the details in the National Health Plan. It's what they clearly are targeting their funding to is online and telephone resources to support Lifeline, Kids Helpline, a dedicated mental and well-being program for frontline health workers, um, 
to provide online and phone services, community visitor scheme being expanded, Headspace expanding its digital work and study service, culturally appropriate mental health and wellbeing resources for First Australians to be developed across a range of platforms. And on it goes a whole series of, and these are clearly designed in this COVID era to provide some more online and telephone type of support, which which seems to me entirely appropriate. I have, I have patients who use these phone line supports a lot and find them extremely helpful. So that, to me, that says that's quite good spending of money. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, I, I definitely am not trying to suggest that financial support for mental health services is not required. I'm just saying that the representation of the problem is an increased need for, uh, you know, is a mental health issue. Um, it's actually a social and political issue. It's People are losing their jobs. I'm, I work in the university sector and um, people will know from general media coverage that we're about to lose about 25,000 jobs. So I've spent a lot of time um, talking to colleagues through the week, managing the stress um, that is a consequence of that. Now, their stress, their need for mental health would be um, mitigated extensively if the economic structures allowed for um, this particular cohort, the, the cohort that I'm most familiar with, and there are others um, around the community, um, if their job security was addressed. And think of our arts community as well. Now, this package, this job keeper package, completely ignored that sector, right? So both the arts sector and the university sector. So there's a political decision to make these people vulnerable and, and therefore direct them to mental health services. To me, that just doesn't make sense. So what I'm hearing, Panel B2, is that while $48 million might be well spent on, <clears throat> on the um, helplines and digital resources for people, and we're not having any argument with that, we like the idea that there's going to be some research sure. to see what happens. But what you're saying, well, you've just discovered you've got a spare $60 billion in your back pocket, and if you really want to bolster mental health, use that to look after the job security of some of the people in the educational sectors, the art sectors, the people who've otherwise been ignored by the current programs. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 people, like, um, and people like Professor Hickey up at the um, Brain and Mind Centre at University of Sydney and Patrick McGorry, they're, they're all over this. They're, although they've been um, instrumental in um, lobbying for policy attention and funding attention to go with it on mental health issues, their voices are, are also directing it to the structural reform that's required to make sure that this aspect of mental health um, is addressed, which is the is the social inclusion. Um, they're pointing to the fact that um, just the way that our economy is run, rather than our society is run, is is the cause of this. Well, thank you, Panel Beta, and thank you for bringing this up. And hopefully, we'll come back to this a bit further down the track, and we'll see what the results have been, and see what the that seventy million or whatever it was that's going to be spent on the research, what the results show us. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And just in these last few minutes, I just want to give a little update on the telehealth experience because a lot's been said about it, a lot's been written about it. And we've now done 10 million uh, telehealth consults in general practice. So, yay, we've reached a... Um, some sort of milestone there. I, I went back and had a little look to see um, what I've been doing since uh, once I got out of quarantine, because while I was in quarantine, of course, it was all telehealth. But since I've been back going to the practice uh, and have the possibility of seeing people, 
Out of 334 consultations, um, 229, so around about two-thirds of them have been through telehealth, but it surprised me how many actually have been face-to-face. We are still seeing quite a number of people. A lot of this is for procedural type stuff which you can't do by telehealth you can't give kids immunizations either telehealth um, pretty hard to get parents to stick needles in their own kids or patients to <laughs> give themselves depot injections so we've been seeing people for that sort of thing but um, it's interesting how well it has worked for the two-thirds who are talking to us only on the telephone um, mostly mostly we're not using video uh, one interesting experience has been that after, uh, when did Alexandra Graham Bell invent the telephone? It was well over 100. You might know that panel, Peter. That's your sort of area of expertise. How, 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 <laughs> Telecommunication? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, we're, we're well over 100 years. Yeah. Yep. So, but what astonishes me, in 2020, half the time I still feel like someone's talking to me through a pair of, Vic, sort of Scandinavian hiking socks or something. I don't, I don't know <laughs> what it is about voice quality that we still struggle with that. Uh, so that has turned out to be quite an interesting limiting factor. So if it's hard enough getting decent voice, trying to get people to work out video and Zoom and that sort of thing, uh, you spend more time trying to fiddle with the technology than actually doing a consultation. But I think many of us have been very, very pleasantly surprised by how effective it is and how many things we can sort out on the phone. And so, oh boy, do, there's some patients who completely love this because people who live a long way away uh, don't have to get in their car, drive for 40 minutes, have trouble parking and sit in the waiting room full of screaming snotty kids just to get the blood pressure tablets. I really hope somebody's doing some um, research around this area, Dr. Nick, about people's um, experience with telehealth, especially on the mental health front, let alone any of the other aspects. Um, because I suspect there is a particular profile of people who it really, really suits. I, um, setting aside the mental health or um, or clinical health aspect of things um, for a moment, just noticing uh, some of the student engagement uh, with the online delivery that we're doing. Um, there are students that I – so we didn't go into online until, depending on the course, uh, week three or week four. So I'd had three weeks with a bunch of students. And as I do at the start of semester, I just you know make a mental note of which students I need to keep an eye on because I'm worried that they're kind of um, uh, maybe just shy or but they're disengaged or whatever. And so going into lockdown, they're the ones that I was worried about. But interestingly, I've noticed a, a, quite a number on that list that I had for myself. They've either completely changed or I got them wrong to begin with. Um, but they're really engaged online in a way that just has shocked me. So this is something which has been our experience as well. People, it's a mixed picture, of course, people with anxiety disorders, a time of uncertainty is incredibly anxiety-inducing. But there is also something comforting for some of those people yeah. to be able to talk on the telephone or by Zoom from from the privacy of their own home without having to go out into public. And people with social anxiety, uh, my experience has been that they are much, much happier to connect over the telephone. And interestingly, when I broke down the telehealth uh, numbers by mental health consultations, uh, whereas only about two-thirds of my overall consultations have been done by telehealth, 80% of my very considerable number, total of 81 mental health consultations, 80% of them have been done by telehealth. Wow. So a lot of the uh, people with these kind of uh, psychological questions and difficulties have been very comfortable to do it on the phone. Um, and I think 
while we recognise that having people in the room, of course, gives you all sorts of extra information, it has turned out to be amazing how effective it can be just doing it by voice. So throw your crystal ball into the into the scene, uh, Dr Nick. What are you going to keep doing uh, after this moment in time passes and telehealth is um, just one of the suite of options as opposed to, for some people, the only option? So the, telehealth is supposed to be funded for primary care for six months and then stop. Um, I think by the end of six months, pretty much every GP is going to say, well, if you don't keep funding telehealth, I'm moving to a country where they do. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of us are going to be prepared to give it up. Uh, interestingly, we've, in a sense, we've always done it. It, it. Every GP I know has phoned patients, taken calls from patients at some time. Uh, it just hasn't been funded. Uh, so it ha- they haven't been formal consultations consultations, but pretty much everyone will have a chat with the patient, a quick result or whatever, uh, and knows that that's been an effective way of doing it. To formalise it and make it a standard part of practice, I I think is long overdue uh, and now should stay. It's a good point you make about the different territories and their capacity to do telehealth. So conceptually, we might be all on board thinking um, of all the merits. Um, but there's still a significant digital divide in Australia, not just, you know, whether we're, um, you know, getting dodgy, dodgy connections, um, thanks MBN and else, but um, just there's a whole bunch of people who are excluded from a digital life. One of the things that telehealth does give us then is when people are more remote or more excluded uh, geographically, they can connect with people who they know um, who might be a long way away. So I have patients who've moved who I haven't heard from for years who suddenly are connecting by telehealth uh, because the physical divide no longer makes so much difference mm-hmm. and, in fact, essentially makes no difference. Yeah. It's the it's the economic and homelessness and the insecurity domestically that um, you know a lot of people are are missing out on. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I don't want to suggest that this is a complete substitute. Of course, it's not. There is something that will always be um, highly important and therapeutic and necessary. We have to examine people. We have to do things like that. But it's uh, so many times we talk about these things that they're binary, it's one or the other. Of course, I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is I think telehealth is an incredibly useful and important new tool oh, yeah. that we should adopt yep. and we should keep. It's not a substitute for anything. It's just an extra little uh, arrow in our quiver to mix up all sorts of horrible metaphors. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So we, we will see as time goes by and we'll probably have a bit of fun. I'm looking it. forward to stories from people who um, uh, are told by their employer that they don't need to make a doctor's appointment at, uh, on addition to their lunch hour. They can just do it in the spare room in the office uh, rather than uh, rather than going off. Yes, and every now and then people have had to send us photographs of things and uh, they'd have to have a very discreet room for some of the photographs I've been sent up. Yes. <laughs> Being able to make all sorts of diagnoses from very intimate photographs, which I've then deleted very quickly <laughs> from my device. Anyway, we'll talk more about telehealth in the future. I'm just going to give a very quick shout out um, to uh, a centre which people may not know about, but if you're a frontline worker in family violence, you need to know about, if you don't already, the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare. Now, if you've heard of this centre, you'll know it already. If you haven't, jump onto their website. If you have anything to do with child and family welfare and particularly violence within families, the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare 
has some fantastic resources, one of which is a video uh, which I shared recording and which we're doing the follow-up for this afternoon, which gives lots of practical advice for frontline workers. So if you don't know about the one, get on and have a look at it, uh, a really useful resource. It's nearly time to wrap up here, so it's just time to say thank you to our wonderful telephone panellist, Rainbow Doc. Lovely to have had you, and a particular thank you to you, Panel Beta, for your contribution. Thanks, Dr Nick. Keeping this whole thing on the road. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. And, of course, you can always download the podcast so that you can listen to us on the road, in the bath, or anywhere you like. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.